So I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we live in a world of fine print. Have you noticed that? Like it, and, and if you don't know what fine print is, it's that, uh, it's that terms and conditions that you don't read, right? Um, on a new app that you download, and one of the lines in the terms and conditions is that you promise to give your firstborn daughter, if you violate any of the terms and conditions, you laugh, but you didn't read it, so you don't know. Uh, and, and that's the thing, is our, our world has all of these little written and sometimes unwritten rules, this fine print that is added to our lives, and it, it, in a sense, it dominates us. It, it, this fine print is not just in apps and mortgage documents that we don't read, um, but things like your job has fine print, right? Have you ever noticed that you get a new job and then you get into the job and you realize that there's stuff that you were agreeing to that you didn't actually sign up for when you decided to work there? And some of that fine print is just unspoken stuff, little unwritten rules like whether you can be late to a meeting and how late you can be to the meeting, right? Whether that's acceptable or whether that's considered rude. It's, it's, it's things like um, the unwritten rule or the fine print that is actually written, but it's not written in any documents that are official, but it's written by Bonnie from accounting, right? Who wrote on a piece of paper, please wash your dishes, we're not your mom, right? And posted it right there in kitchen. Or there's a shelf in your office that says, don't put anything on this shelf. There's a little sign there and no one knows who put the sign there, but no one puts anything on that shelf. And the person who probably made the sign probably doesn't even work there anymore, right? And there's the jiggle the toilet handle sign, right? The fine print when you could just fix the toilet, but it says, no, just jiggle the handle. And so the problem is we just live in this world where we're dominated by print, by fine print by rules that are just kind of lobbed into our lives um, from people outside of us. We're, we're inundated by fine print. And the problem is these kind of insidious little add-on rules to our lives, uh, they're not just annoying, but they can be downright dangerous in our lives. Today, we are uh, working our way through the book of Colossians, and what we hit today is one of the richest theological passages in Colossians that could stand alone by itself, but in context, this dense, beautiful theological passage has everything to do with fine print. Let me give you the context here. The short passage we're looking at today that we just heard read sits between two others. And the two other passages provide, in a sense, the bookends and the context for what's gonna be talked about in the middle. The first is a verse that we covered last week, which is Colossians 2, verse eight, where it says this, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition based on the elements of the world rather than on Christ. That's the first bookend. And the second bookend is the passage we're gonna cover next week that is summarized in these verses uh, where it says this. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands in doctrines. So let me just say it this way. There are people in this world and there are people in the church that are gonna to try to add some fine print to your Christian faith. 
They're going to try to give you some rules to live by that you didn't know you signed up for when you signed on the dotted line, when you scrolled and said, agree to becoming a follower of Jesus. And so today what we're going to look at is the fine print that gets lobbed into our Christian lives from outside of the church. And then next week, we're going to look at the fine print that gets lobbed into our lives from inside of the church. So here's a couple examples. I just kind of thought about some examples of fine print that people may add to your Christian faith and they expect you to live by this fine print. Let me give you three examples. The first is this. It's cool if you're a Christian as long as you don't believe Christianity is the only true religion. That's a fine print that is added to our faith by those outside of the church. And the reason we've gotten to this place, there, there was a guy named D.A. Carson who wrote a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And what he says is, we've replaced a classic definition of tolerance, which is this, you and I can disagree and we can have a great argument and I can tell you that you're dead wrong and you can tell me that I'm dead wrong and then afterward we're gonna fist bump and we're gonna be fine with one another. That's the old school definition of tolerance. The new school, squishy definition of tolerance is, is that I'm not allowed to say that you're dead wrong. <laughs> I'm not allowed to say that, that, that you are wrong and that there is, there is just one truth in any particular area. This new form of tolerance says that we can't tell somebody else that their views are wrong. And that's where we've come up with this goofy idea of your truth or my truth, as opposed to the truth. Our world says you can't say that one religion is objectively true above all other religions. It's in the fine print. Let me give you another one. I'll accept you as a Christian if you affirm my non-Christian beliefs as equally valid. Now this one is almost the same as the last one, but it moves from the realm of belief systems as it, uh, as it relates to religion, and it moves to all type of belief systems and worldviews. And this is actually a fundamentally intolerant view in pretty much the classic and the new squishy version uh, of tolerance. Because this bit of fine print says the Christians can believe and may believe that the Bible says that something is sinful, but they cannot say that it is sinful for people who disagree with them. And a step further, it says that Christians must affirm in someone else that those are, things are not sinful for them. You see how that fine print has worked its way in, into our, our churches? Let me, there's a lot of these. Let me just give you one more. Uh, religion, including Christianity, is a private, personal matter, and it should be kept that way. This is sort of the culmination of the other two. It's the logical end of the other two. And, and that means that in our culture, you're allowed to have any view you want about anything. You're able to celebrate that view. You're able to throw yourself a parade. You can put a bumper sticker on your car. But when it comes to your religious views, shh, keep those to yourself. It's not polite to talk about those. So, so what do we do with all of this fine print? Well, my hope and my prayer is that these six verses in Colossians 2 will set you free from this fine print. Let's start with a verse that could be a sermon series unto itself. Colossians 2, verse 9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Let me reread that again if the weight of that didn't just hit you. For the entire fullness 
of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Now, here's the thing. People think and believe a lot of things about Jesus. They think he's a good moral teacher, uh, that he's an anti-establishment activist, right? That he's a, a prophet. But let this sink in. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Jesus. A lot of people say that they love Jesus, but they're like, you know what? But I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I kind of hate him. I got bad news for you. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in, in Jesus. In fact, the word here translated God's nature is theotitos. Isn't that a great word? Theotitos, which means the totality of who God is. What that means is that Jesus isn't just godly, Jesus is God. Jesus isn't just God-like, Jesus is God. All the things that, that make God God are pressed into Jesus bodily. It's not just in him, it's in him bodily. And you'll often hear Christians refer to Jesus as the God-man. He's fully God and he's fully man. And that's what this is talking about. Jesus is 100% of who God is, pressed 100% into who he is in his humanness. So if you want to know what it means that God is faithful, you only need to look to Jesus. If you want to know what it means that God is good, you just need to look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means that God is just, you just look at Jesus. And the same is true with his mercy and his righteousness and his love and his holiness and his gloriousness and his forgiveness and his, his power and his meekness and his gentleness. If you want to know what God is like, you only need to look at Jesus. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And that's not even the end of this great theological truth. Check out what he says next. He says, and, verse 10, he's going to build it, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Do you, do you see this? This is crazy. Jesus is filled completely with God's nature. All of God's nature dwells bodily in Jesus, and you, if you are a follower of Jesus, have now been filled by whom? Jesus, filled with what? Jesus, who is the entire fullness of God's nature. Wait, wait, does that mean that you're like God? No, the root word here for filled is the same as the word for fullness, but the word is different. Paul is using a commonplace version of this word, word to say that while we are not God, we are fully complete in Jesus. That we lack nothing when it comes to our salvation. We, are, we may not fully understand our salvation. We may not fully live in light of our salvation. But there is, get this, no fine print to it. Jesus who is the head, which means authority, over every ruler and authority, says so. 
Now, this phrase right here, ruler and authority, it, it can mean, it's a little bit subject to debate, it can mean earthly rulers and authorities, it can mean supernatural rulers and authorities. I'm not going to get into that a whole lot here, except I think in this text it can mean both, and we'll get there in a second. But for now, just let this sink in. Paul is talking to these Christians in this, in this city of Colossae, and by extension to all Christians everywhere down through time, including you, and he is saying, Jesus has filled you with everything you need in God's nature, which means you have access to God's faithfulness and his mercy and his graciousness and his love and his holiness and his gloriousness and his forgiveness and his power, and his meekness, and his gentleness, and there is no strings attached. So now, Paul gives us an illustration to try to help us out. But those of us in 2023, this illustration does not help us out. So let's just go ahead and read it. And you got to track, track with this, right? He's just got done saying God's, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells what right in Jesus. And Jesus has now indwelt us. And so now we have all that fullness. And he gives us this picture now, uh, verse 11 and 12. He says, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead dead. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I got one right, and the rest of you are like, I don't have any idea what that means, right? See, what Jesus is getting at here is, is the way, or the Paul's getting at, is the way that Jesus tows the fullness of the nature of God to us is through something. And the something here he refers to as a circumcision, not done by hand, baptism. Now, that opens a whole bunch of cans of worms, doesn't it? Like here, like here at Riv, here's what I know. We got people at Riv who didn't grow up in the church. We've got some people who came to Christianity uh, through other religions or from other religions. We also have a smorgasbord of Christians here. We got Baptists and, and Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans and Pentecostals and Catholics and Church of Christers and every single one of you comes with a different idea of what circumcision and baptism is. So you read this verse completely different. <laughs> So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to take a little, little tangent, and some of you are going to be like, like totally bored for a second, and we're going to talk about like what are the predominant views of baptism in, in most churches, all right? We're going to take the, I, I, when we went through Colossians about four or five years ago, I did an entire message on this, so you can go back and look at that if you really care, but I created a little chart, and it's overly simplistic, so it's just going to try to get the point across. This is the summary of various Christian positions on what baptism is. Okay, so this first column right here, it would be called believer's baptism. And believer's baptism would basically say that baptism is neither sacramental, it's not covenantal, it's purely symbolic. 
That baptism is something that is done out of obedience to Christ. It's, it's about identification with Christ, and it's a symbol of our, our faith. And so the idea in believer's baptism is someone needs to become a Christian first, and then they are immersed as a symbol of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Um, and, and basically, and the examples we have in the New Testament show that this is done by immersion, kind of completely dunking underwater. That's believer's baptism. And so the adherents of Baptists pretty much hold this view a salvific, that means, does it save you? That would say, no, it doesn't save you. And the mode is typically done by immersion. That's this column, okay? Second column, covenantal baptism. They would say that just like the covenant of circumcision with Abraham, this is a sign for God's people. And so Presbyterians and Methodists would hold this view. They would say it doesn't necessarily save you, but they would use sprinkling instead of baptism. And it's a seal of a saving faith is what that is. So baptism as a means of grace is someone who says that this is a sacrament that kind of uh, initiates someone into the Christian faith. And so Lutherans would teach that at baptism, they, uh, someone receives the promise of, of salvation, and then eventually they'll get, and they get faith as a gift from that, and eventually they'll be open to God's grace. So Lutherans hold this view. They think it's sort of salvific, um, and the mode is usually sprinkling. And then there is salvific baptism. And this is people who would believe that there is no distinction between salvation and baptism because they're the same thing. That baptism washes away original sin. Catholic Church believes um, that the baptism kind of covers that original sin. The Church of Christ believes that, that Jesus um, saves you and it regenerates you through baptism. Um, and both of those viewpoints think that you've got to continually confess your sin. Okay, there you go. Sorry about that. But you probably looked at this and thought, oh yeah, I know which one I, I grew up in, <laughs> right? I know I, I, that's the stuff that, that I heard. And I know that was a lot of context, but I wanted you to have this to frame this view again. So let me go back and reread these confusing verses. Verses 11 and 12. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done by, with hands, but putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so when you read that verse and it talks about circumcision and, and baptism together, that's when my Presbyterian friends throw their hands in the air and say, see, we win. And they're like, we baptize babies because there seems to be a linkage between Old Testament circumcision, which was the introduction of a Jewish male into the covenant family, to New Testament baptism, which is the introduction of a person into the covenant family of the church. But there's two main reasons I can't buy that from this passage. One is nuanced, the other one isn't. The nuanced one is he describes here baptism as something that is a circumcision that is done without human hands. And every baptism I've ever seen is done with human hands. Now, you, you can't, like, like, put a whole theological view on that one thing. That's kind of nuanced. But the second one is the, the kicker for me, and it's where the, it says this. It says, in which you were also raised with him through faith. See, what we see consistently in the New Testament is salvation comes by faith. And so what seems to be a clear reading of this text to me is someone has faith, Jesus saves them, 
and then they are baptized. I even like the word buried in baptism because that, that's immersion, right? That idea, by the way, that word baptism comes from the word baptizo in Greek, which means to dunk. And there's a word called rantizo, which is to sprinkle. So like when you go to McDonald's and you put salt on your fries, you rantize your fries, Right, that's sprinkling there. So for me, that idea of, of dunking, that death, that burial, and the resurrection is important for the symbolism. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Well, column one is where we would be at Riv. We would have the view of believer's baptism. Column two, great godly friends of mine hold that view. Um, and, and I see where they're coming from, the introduction to the covenant family and all that. And so what we do at RIV is we require baptism for membership because it is the very first act of obedience that Jesus asks, asks of anyone who follows him. But we're not gonna fight over the mode. And so if you uh, were baptized and you were baptized as a baby and an infant and you really truly convictionally believe that, that's your, that that was your baptism, and we're not going to fight over it. We're not going to require it to be by immersion. Column three, man, I'm practically a Lutheran in so many ways, but on this one, I just can't buy the whole baptism makes you somehow open to God's grace thing. It just can't find it in, in Scripture. And, and column four, I think I have to reject because as followers of Jesus, we must categorically reject that it is dependent, our salvation is dependent on any act. So what is the main issue? Where can we all agree, no matter where our background is? We'll go to verse 13. He says, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all of our trespasses. And so, Let's get out of the theological weeds of baptism for a second and say this is what we agree on. Your salvation, which is symbolized by baptism, means that God has done some stuff for you through Jesus, both internally and externally. Internally, you were dead, and now you're alive. You were condemned, but now you're forgiven. And then Paul gives us another illustration that we can grasp better. 14, he erased the certificate of debt, debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. I love this. Because we can get this one, can't we? Jesus erased what? The certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. There's been a lot of debate the last several years about student loan debt. And one of the major talking points of student loan debt is the weight of that thing, right? The fact that the, the, the average median, the median student loan debt for a borrower is between twenty and 25000 which, by, by the way, means if you have more than $25,000, you are in the top half. Congratulations. Um, um, that is a huge weight. And that weight comes with obligations. You can't just blow off debt payments. They, they, they could come in and take your house and they could, could garnish your wages and, and there is a huge weight. So debt is such a beautiful picture of what sin is in our lives. This imagery is that sin is like a document that we inherited with our nature from our dad, Adam. We signed it with our attitudes and actions and few of us ever bothered to read the fine print. The fine print is you, without Jesus, have an eternity that is spent not in life, but in death. 
that living now, trying to find meaning and purpose apart from how God created you to live is just gonna end up empty. There are obligations to this debt. Your sin nature is gonna tell you it's gonna demand that you live a certain way, living for yourself, living for your own pleasures, protecting yourself, protecting people who are like you. Sin is against you. Sin is opposed to you. And Jesus has taken that document, that debt, with all the fine print that we never read, and he erased it. And not only did he erase it when he got done with it, he took that empty document and he nailed it to the cross where it got covered with his blood. Look at verse 15. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now, again, I said earlier that this could be human authorities. It might be spiritual authorities. And there's a sense in which both can and are true. Salvation is a humiliation and a disgrace to the devil. And in Colossae, there were people that that Paul was writing to um, that were struggling to truly grasp the the gospel because there were human authorities in their life that were teaching them false things, trying to add fine print to their life. And so what I did is just for funsies, I, I took everything in this passage that Jesus did for us and I put it on a list. Just to summarize, in case you've been lost, let's just pull it back in right here. All right, here's everything Jesus did for us according to this passage. He filled us with the fullness of God. He spiritually circumcised us. He buried us with him in baptism. He raised us up to a life with him in baptism. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations. He nailed the certificate of debt with its obligations to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disgraced the rulers and authorities publicly. And he triumphed over the rulers and authorities. Jesus did all of that. And according to this passage, what did you do? Had faith. That's it. That's it. So what does this have to do with the fine print that we talked about at the beginning? Well, let me recap by addressing each one of these again. Someone will say, it's cool if you're a Christian, as long as you don't believe Christianity is the only true religion. (laughs) But here's what we believe. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. God's goodness, his justice, his mercy, his graciousness, his love, his holiness, his gloriousness, his forgiveness, his power, his meekness, his gentleness, they're all found in Jesus. And there are little echoes of this in all of humanity because every one of us has created what's called the, in the imago Dei, which is in the image of God. And so you see little glimmers of this in other religions and in other people. You see little pictures of this around the world because we're all created in the image of God, but we're all broken. And only in Jesus has the entire fullness of God's nature rested. And so we believe that Jesus is, because he said he was, the way, the truth, the life. And because Jesus said it, we believe that there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus, which means Christianity is the only true religion. There may be truth in other religions, 
but only insofar as they don't contradict Jesus. What about this fine print? I'll accept you as a Christian if you affirm my non-Christian beliefs as equally valid. Well, consider this. We were dead, and Jesus made us alive. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again, all symbolized in our baptism. And he did this because we couldn't save ourselves. We wouldn't save ourselves. And so when we finally let go of the death grip of our life and selfishness, and we place our faith in Jesus alone to save us through the work on the cross, he does save us and he marks us like the Old Testament Israelites were marked with circumcision, which means we now have a new life. And that means everything else pales by comparison. All of the pursuit Everything we were looking for in life finally is found in Jesus. And we know that the pursuits of this world are a dead end. So why would we affirm something that leads to death in someone else? And here, for many of us, is where the rubber meets the road. It's the bit of fine print that says religion, including Christianity, is a private personal matter, and it should be kept that way. Well, we can't accept that. Because we know that sin is not just an affront to God, it is destructive to people that we love, including our dear friends and families who hold views that sin in their life is not really sinful. We know it's harmful to them here on earth, and we know that it will separate them from him for all eternity, and so we can't keep good news like this to ourselves. We need to call other people to affirm that Jesus has done all the work and all that's left for us to do is in that final column to have faith in him. There's nothing else that can save anyone and there's no fine print. Which is why the last thing that Paul says in this section or the next thing he says is he says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you And I'm just going to stop there because I don't want to spoil next week. (laughs) If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have Jesus, and that's enough. Isn't that the best news you've ever heard? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Yes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is enough, that he is sufficient. We thank you that, that there is no fine print to our faith. There are things that sound reasonable that our world lobs into our faith and tells us that we need to live by, but we know that those things are untrue. And so we just pray that we would be people who, who don't try to save ourselves and don't try to live by religious views that are thrown into us from outside uh, of our faith but we live for Jesus and Jesus alone. We thank you for his work on the cross. We thank you for his death, burial, resurrection symbolized in our baptism. And we thank you that he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he advocates for us right now. We thank you that we have in him all that we will ever need. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.